Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we've got sort of a panel discussion going on between me, Ned Bellavance, your other co-host, Ethan Banks, and another Packet Pushers person, Michael Levan. Michael Levan, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And this is a special episode. We are at Cloud Field Day 17 here in beautiful Boston with quite a view of the bay. I think that was probably the highlight for me. Our hotel is situated with a beautiful view of the skyline. I went out for a run this morning, and that's what we're going to talk about for the remainder of the episode is how my running's going. Right, Ethan? Yes, absolutely. I want to hear exactly how your running is going, Ned. That oh, is... it's it's been a bit of a struggle lately. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but seriously, we are here to talk about Cloud Field Day 17, the vendors that presented, but we'd like to weave it into a larger narrative. And that larger narrative had a few themes. So I'll go first with the theme that jumped out to me from day one, and then maybe each of you could share what jumped out for you. So the presenters yesterday, we had Haiku, which is spelled H-Y-C-U, making it a true acronym and not an initialism. <laughs> yeah, you like that? <laughs> we had Morpheus Data, also presenting. And then finally, we had Rack N. So those were the three vendors from yesterday. And the unifying theme, theme that I found within it was platform engineering and how that's becoming more and more popular. How do you feel about that, Ethan? Um, it depends on how you define platform engineering, I guess. But I mean, the, <laughs> the, the big idea to me and the thing that I was taking away was... Uh, you know, we've talked about public cloud and, and the thing that developers love about public cloud is all the APIs and you can just instantiate whatever infrastructure you need and they don't even have to care. It's just applications go. Well, now we can do platform engineering and offer developers that on-premises. Uh, we can do that now. And that seems to be what a lot of platforms are moving us towards. And uh, the two vendors particularly that were helping us with that was uh, Morpheus Data and yeah. the other one. Rackin. Rackin. <laughs> oh, sorry, the presentations are all blurring together, yeah. To jump off what you were just saying, the thing that I started thinking about was what developers also really love about the cloud is the self-service aspect of it. The fact that they can go and just provision infrastructure without asking for permission from somebody yeah. else. And as we have seen a slow march of people, not necessarily repatriating workloads, but rediscovering their on-prem data centers, the developers that are being introduced to that environment that grew up in the cloud are expecting a cloud-like experience from the on-prem environment. And we're also seeing the explosion of multi-cloud where you have some developers that want to work on AWS and others that want to work on Azure and someone's other random cloud service that exists out there or hasn't been invented yet. So with all of that in mind, they want that portal, they want that self-service experience, and they want a team to provide that for them. Yeah, so it's funny, like when I think about platform engineering, I think about your internal developer platform. Uh, I think that's the differentiator between, let's say, the, the, the DevOps engineer and the you know platform engineers. Platform engineers are developers, they're writing code, they're just building applications to make developers' lives easier. And, you know, when I think about that, I mean, you know, we've arguably been doing this for such a long time. We were doing, I was doing this 2016, 2017 as a cloud engineer, but I was writing code and I was building these things for developers to make their lives easier. But now with, you know, Morpheus, for example, I don't have to build it myself. It's just, it's there, it's available. 
and you know it connects whether I'm going on prem, whatever cloud I'm going to. So it kind of uh, not takes the job away of the platform engineer, but kind of gives the ability to make the job a little bit easier and they're able to manage a platform that already exists versus having to build one in-house. Yeah, the thing Morpheus was doing, especially that we as a ops person doesn't have to do, they built all the integrations, tons of integrations with tons of different tools. They end up being this layer in the middle that a developer can interface with on the one side and it interfaces with all the tooling on the other side so that they can have that self-service experience. And we as operations people don't have to be writing Python scripts or doing work in Terraform or Ansible to do the instantiation of whatever it is the developers need to bring to life. That was the magic to me, but there was still a lot of work there for the ops person. It wasn't like more was like, you don't need ops people now. It's like, no, 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 this just happens to be the platform that the ops people are gonna be using to, to give that service and make it available to the developers. And I was happy to see that they're embracing a plugin framework where other vendors can develop plugins to work with Morpheus or you as someone who's consuming Morpheus and want to use this new service, oh, there's not a plugin for it? Well, you can write one because the standard is open source and the development kit is open source. You can go and develop, or develop that plugin or check the marketplace and see if somebody's already done it for you. So that was a big deal, especially if you're on the operator side. Okay, but here's what threw me in, and Michael, I'm gonna throw this question to you. The thing that we were not talking about very much in our platform engineering discussions over Cloud Field Day 17 was Kubernetes. Like, it hardly came up. <laughs> right. uh, and yet, if you think about what the platform of the future is, many people have argued that it is Kubernetes, and that's what you're doing. So what did you think about that? Yeah, so I think that the reason why we're not seeing it pop up in every single discussion is because it... As you said, it is almost the default at this point. It is just the obvious choice. You know, each tool kind of said, yeah, we're doing Kubernetes. It, it, it's turning into something where it's like, yeah, we're running this on servers. We're not going to talk about servers the whole time because we just know it's obvious. It's there. It's running. That's where the whole thing is going. And I think that's kind of like the direction that Kubernetes is going in as well. Like it's there, you know, like when we're going to go outside, we're going to put shoes on. It's obvious. We don't have to tell everybody we're putting shoes on when we go outside. It, I, I see it, you know, in the same light. You said it's obvious, but the thing is, it isn't. I don't think it is. It's obvious to Michael Levan, the <laughs> Kubernetes guy who lives and breathes it every day and consults on it and writes books and teaches about it and all that. But I think for there's still a major part of IT operations that Kubernetes is something other people do. Big companies do that maybe. I don't do that. And maybe it's more familiar to the developer folks and operations people looking for a solution that they're more familiar with and that uses the tooling that they already use. And so Amorpheus comes in or RackN comes in. Now RackN, uh, they were a bit different than Morpheus as far as what they do. It was platform engineering, but it was all about that bare metal, throw it, throw it in the rack and aim RackN digital rebar at it and have it do something within minutes. Right. Their software is called Digital Rebar. Yeah. And portions of it are open source. I don't think the whole project is. The analogy that I made during the presentation to better understand it myself, and I think it still holds up pretty well, is they're sort of the version of Azure Resource Manager for on-prem environments. So if you think about what Azure actually does on the back end, they have a whole bunch of services that actually provision the hardware and the virtual machines and the hypervisors and manage all the network gear and all of that snaps into a resource manager, which is the front end that you can actually talk to and ask for it to provision things like Azure Virtual Machines or Azure SQL. 
And to a certain degree, that's sort of where digital rebar sits. It sits at that lower layer where it's provisioning the actual physical machines, bootstrapping them from nothing to having a full-blown operating system, and then managing the life cycle of that. And it can also work with network switches and storage arrays. Yeah, I mean, full-blown full-blown operating system and other stuff. I mean, as uh, Rob Hirschfeld was talking to us, he made the point that it, it goes up the stack. So it's, it's, it's OS and more is how I interpreted it. So that the thing, if you have some kind of a standard build for a web server, uh, Rackhand will build that thing for you and it's all said and done. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I think something that's interesting is that if you look at, let's say all the presentations from yesterday, you look at Haiku, you look at Rackhand, you look at Morpheus, and there's this trend happening where, you know, to, to your point, Ethan, everything is like a plug-in or a third party <laughs> at this point. Like, you know, same with Morpheus, you look at Haiku, it's everything back up in recovery, but, you know, from this tool and from that vendor and from this tool and from that vendor. And then same thing with Rackin, it's one place, but you write your cloud formation there and your Terraform and you deploy it to this cloud and this on-prem environment, et cetera. So it's, it's almost like we are seeing an abundance of... I don't know what to call them, central hubs. I would almost call them orchestrators. Because that's essentially... Control planes? Control planes, workflow automation, however yeah. you want to term it. That's essentially what Morpheus Data and Rackin are doing, is creating useful workflow automation that has a bunch of things already baked into it. The hard stuff. The hard stuff like bootstrapping a whole bunch of physical servers by just talking to the baseboard management controller and starting there. That's difficult, especially in a heterogeneous environment that we usually find in a data center. And that's that's the problem they've cracked. But if you want to put that, but it's not a competitor to what Morpheus Data is doing because they're a little further up the stack. You might use Morpheus Data to send jobs out to RackN for it to provision the physical hardware that's going to run a workload that is also going to be deployed by Morpheus Data. So those two tools are complementary to a certain degree. So, so let me ask you guys this question, and I'll play devil's advocate. Do you think that because these tools are, you know, abstracting this piece away even more and the hard stuff, is it going to make it more difficult for engineers later on to truly understand what's happening in their environments? That's where monitoring comes in. I. I I mean, yes, because I think any abstraction layer does move you a level away from what's really going on. We could argue Kubernetes is, is kind of in the same place, but we could have argued that VMware was that too, <laughs> yeah. from a certain point of view. And, and so now going back to your point about monitoring, yeah. So, so going back to RackN, uh, Rob made a point towards the end of the presentation that if you need to know what's going on in the environment, we have very clear logging that is in fact auditable. So you can know exactly what's going on when things don't go right, because it is a bit of a Rube Goldberg machine, what you're doing there. <laughs> um, that system has a lot of dependencies and a lot of things that have to happen to get that system provisioned, including perhaps calling on Ansible or Terraform to, to do the build. Right. And so having that auditability, being able to see deep down inside and knowing exactly what's going on is crucial. Right. To further play off the theme of multi-cloud and lots of different tools and things that you're using, Haiku's big thing and their big announcement was all around the fact that they're building out a backup platform to allow SaaS vendors to integrate backup into their solutions. And that was a really weird take because it inverted the whole idea of what a backup vendor's intended to do. Ah. Uh 
Okay, weird take. I know why you said that, because it is unusual in the sense that they cited, they said there's 17,000 SaaS applications out there. And if we're using as consumers a SaaS application, whatever, like in my case, I consume a CRM application that is SaaS based. It's got a lot of very important data to me that are in the sales pipeline and what my customers, how I pay them and how they pay me. And all of that is, is in there. How do I back that up? Uh, you know, do a data export now and again and hope you can re-import it if things really go badly. So the haiku positioning is we're going to make a platform so that, you know, Banks' CRM SaaS service that he's using, if they chose to offer backup, could write to haiku. And we're going to make it very easy for a developer that wants to write a backup solution for that to consume haiku and save their customers' data so that, that if Banks blows things up, they can do a backup and a restore. Yeah, I saw a big play on policies there, you know, so it's the same thing as, let's say, like policy enforcement in general. Let's, you know, take a container that we're deploying to Kubernetes. One of the best practices are, you know, you don't want to use the latest container image because it might be a dev or alpha build. So then you'd use something like open policy agent to set that specific policy to say nobody can deploy uh, the latest container image to uh, production. And it's the same thing with Haiku and the policies. It's like, you must do X, Y, and Z for your backups and your restores. You have to do it. That's it. So it's almost like from from what I saw, the big takeaway was it's a policy enforcer, much like open policy agent, but for uh, disaster recovery stuff. The other thing that, and I want to link this to your Kubernetes point, because Kubernetes has a CSI. It's got a CNI. That's a standard that was developed, and then it's incumbent on the vendors to then implement that standard for their specific solution. So if I want to offer networking services through Kubernetes as a networking vendor, I have to build to the CNI. Haiku's trying to be sort of the CNI of backup by here's a standard that we're offering you. You as the SaaS vendor can build to that standard, submit your module, I think they called it, to our marketplace, and then someone can use that module with Haiku to back up that SaaS service. They called that R Cloud, right? I think that was the product right. name. Yeah. R Cloud was like the overarching product and then it was made up of like R Marketplace and R Graph yeah. and R something else. Uh, the R Graph was about visualizing all the SaaS applications you're already using because you're probably using about 200% more than you think you are right now. <laughs> Now, so I guess we're leading really into another theme here, Ned, where, where backup or data protection was really another theme of this. Absolutely. So, um, so another player in that space that we heard from uh, today, day two of this event, was Zerto. And Zerto's been around a long time. Now, I hadn't heard from him in between launch. I think I happened <laughs> to be around for that event and now, which was like 10 years ago. Uh, but Zerto's specialty seems to be about, uh, well, just what they called out on their opening slide, real-time detection meets real-time protection. Mm. So it was for uh, VMware environments, very targeted, and being able to detect a data stream flowing through the VMware environment, whether it had not been encrypted and is now encrypted and going, oh my gosh, ransomware might be happening. Right. Then being able to deal with that situation. When you said Zerto, and then you said VMware, I think a lot of people went, VM what? Right. VM who? That does, 
people don't use it. We're on the cloud now, using cloud native with microservices, right? Right, Michael? That's what we're doing now. <laughs> that's 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 it. VMware and, and there's no ops anymore. We're just we gotta wear, we gotta wear with all of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's us living in podcast land that uh, that have environments like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but honestly, the the Zerto thing, data protection, a lot of the theme was about VMware. It's yes. kind of reflecting where the market is at. And it also echoes the fact that when VMware first stood up VMware on AWS, we all went, what? And then we went, oh, right, because no one's getting off VMware for a long time. Too many ops built into it, too much. There's just too much built into VMware to just like, I'm going to up and move everything to, you know, lift and shift it to IaaS or whatever. I'm going to refactor everything, go cloud native. That ain't going to happen in the short term. Right. If we want to pick out a second big theme after platform engineering, it was old tech didn't go anywhere. <laughs> right? No, it's so true. It's and I think that this is the the and I say this all the time. This is the huge differentiation between what you're hearing on social media and what marketing is pushing out and what's actually happening in reality. The reality is is that I would argue that from a large organization perspective, there are still far more larger organizations running on VMware than in the cloud. If you look at global spend on IT, cloud is still not as significant of a portion as you think. And not all that money is being spent on the data center, but you better bet that a decent portion is. So there's plenty of on-premises workloads that are just chugging along making money. And it's funny, there was a slide that one of the vendors said that said something along the lines of legacy costs you money or something like that. And I was like, no, legacy is what makes you money. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it's it's so relevant and we can see it not even just at, at Cloud Field Day, but just in general, look at Azure Stack HCI, look at EKS Anywhere, look at uh, Google Anthos, Look at uh, Azure has the, has the the VMware play now. The mm -hmm. point is is that all of these big tech companies are building for on-prem stuff, building for data center stuff, building for VMware stuff. Why? Because it's still very much relevant. You go back to 2014, 2015, everything was like, everything's going to be in the cloud in two years and nobody's going to care about on-prem anymore. Fast forward now, 2023, these big vendors that are saying that are like, uh-oh, we got to now build some software and some products around on-prem workloads because they're still there and they're not going anywhere, at least for a very long time. Right. So instead you see new solutions or updated solutions that are there to address existing problems with on-prem or try to bridge the gap between what's happening on-prem and what's happening in the cloud. And that's part of what Zerto was trying to do. And also the final presenter today, Jetstream, their solution was all about doing disaster recovery for VMware, where you can do VMware to VMware. And you might think, hey, isn't that a solved problem? Isn't that something isn't we already did? many times a solved problem? <laughs> Yeah, but 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 they're doing it to, to cloud, where your disaster destination is cloud. So they so they gave a couple of scenarios. One scenario was it's disaster recovery, and you just need eventual business continuity. You're not; it's not going to be a seamless failover, but right. you're going to have. Um, they gave they gave Azure VMware solution as a possible destination where you would right. instantiate your disaster recovery. And the important part about AVS is the fact that it can be created on demand, so I don't have to have a bunch of VMware sitting somewhere in a data center, humming along, not running anything, just being my 
hot standby. You, you need to have something because you got you, you got to have the, uh, the the data being replicated somewhere. So you got to right. have the data going somewhere. You got to have the the, the vCenter environment sitting up there in the cloud in AVS. Um, so it has to exist, but you don't have to have all of the uh, the virtual machines. Do I have the right. understanding right, Ned? Well, yes. So you could, in theory, because the target that they were talking about for the data that you're replicating from your VMware environment is any object storage. So you don't need uh, any running okay. compute mm -hmm. to store the replicated data. Now, once you actually want to use that replicated data in a VMware environment, now you have to provision that environment. You could, in theory, provision Azure VMware services on demand, but that takes anywhere from eight to 24 hours, depending on how big the environment you're provisioning is. What you can do is provision the smallest size of that with a minimum number of hosts, and then they use the word rehydrate your data from that object storage. The smallest is in, it's there for you. You don't have to wait for that eight to 24 hours for that environment to get right. created. It's You'd there. already have. You're willing to pay, pay the money just to have that there so you can save time in case of DR. And then during that rehydration process, you can scale it up as big as you need it, which may cost Correct. you more. But You can add you more need. hosts to the cluster to accommodate however big your failover real estate needs to be. Um, but there is a wrinkle with that. And because of the way that the solution is designed, it's a hyper-converged infrastructure, so your storage grows with the number of hosts, which can be difficult if you're trying to run on less hosts but need more storage. And so the third component that they brought into the solution was using NetApp's NetApp file service in Azure, which is actual NetApp filers that live in Azure, but you consume them as a service. That can provision and provide storage directly to the VMware service that's running in Azure, as opposed to using the storage that's on the hosts. Which starts to sound spendy to me. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I don't know at what point they're- Spendy? Well, yes. <sighs> so, okay, so, 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 so the scenario that I'm thinking this is interesting for is I had disaster recovery where I had my primary data center and I had an active or a standby data center or not even standby, just something across town, racks with metal in it that I'm going to spin up in case of disaster recovery. And they sit there and they do nothing for me until I need them. And hopefully I never need them. Correct. This felt like a way better solution than that. If I think about the amount of money that previous organizations I worked for paid, say, SunGuard to just have rack space somewhere, this cost of having a pilot light deployment of ABS and a NetApp filer running in Azure is a lot cheaper. <laughs> so I can see where this makes sense from a cost perspective. If you're trying, if you need VMware-based disaster recovery, it's leveraging new technology to deal with legacy architecture. And this was, you know, something that really kind of uh, shined some light for me. There are a lot of DR backup uh, data, uh, you know, uh, data startups, data companies, like smaller companies, larger companies, whatever you want to call them. Now, of course, we we know there's always been hard drives and there's always been stateful data and we have to store <laughs> data that isn't ephemeral. Like, that's obvious. But I, I maybe just because it's not the space that I'm in, but I, I didn't realize like, oh, this is like a, like, there's like a lot of big talk and big things going on in like in the data space right now with all of these startups and all of these different products and, you know, what Azure's focusing on and what NetApp is focusing on and all these other startups and stuff. I think the, the biggest issue facing backup right now is the complete lack of 
uniformity across mm. the solutions. I got one solution to deal with my VMware environment. I got another one to deal with my Kubernetes environment and another one to deal with Azure and another one for AWS. And then I got all this SaaS stuff, which kind of leads us back to Haiku a little bit. <laughs> now they don't support VMware as far as I know, but they do support all the major clouds and some of the SaaS vendors. So maybe you can get it down to two backup vendors instead of six. <laughs> <sighs> I think that to me, this is a yet a bigger question because if I'm a practitioner and I want to beef up my resume and I want to have the cool job that goes next, what in the heck am I supposed to focus on? Because apparently there's work in VMware if I want to live <laughs> in like it's 1999. Uh, I could do that. You know, if, if I'm if I want to get into Kubernetes, let's say, and be a certified Kubernetes administrator, is that a career path or is it too early for that? I'm not sure what direction to go and how to guide people because all the old stuff is still new and has new technology being built around. We're just moving the same thing to cloud, kind of. So what in the heck are you supposed to be doing? I think the biggest thing to focus on is the way these new products are being built because all of them are built API first. All yeah. of them are built to be programmable or interact with Terraform or something along well, those lines. So, I mean, infrastructure is code, you're saying? What I'm saying is, if you want to focus on something in terms of skills, you should know the fundamentals of infrastructure if that's a space that's interesting you. You also need to understand some of the fundamentals around development. Yeah, I think automation, the ability to create repeatable processes, that was obviously a very big trend that we saw uh, these past two days. I think the other thing is this, like in terms of what engineers should be focusing on, there is, again, going back to the, you know, what marketing is feeding us versus what's happening in reality, there's that piece of it. But here's the other thing. There's also the piece of it of, have you guys ever seen that meme where it was like, you know, the job interview versus the job? Like the one was Godzilla and the other one was like the guy wearing, uh, you know, the, 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 dinosaur, the costume. dinosaur costume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I've heard this so many times where people will be like, I got grilled with like 30 Kubernetes questions in an interview and then they got the job and they walked into the job and guess what they weren't using? Right. Kubernetes. So it's like, <laughs> it's almost like the interviews are going towards the like what's hot and cool versus what's actually being used. So in terms of what engineers should be focusing on, my recommendation is always think about like the type of job that you would want. Go look at those job recs, pull five, 10, 20 of them, put them all together, see what the similarities are and go in that direction. That's always the best advice that I can give because you really never know. You never know what questions you're going to get asked when you walk into an interview. It, it does seem frustrating though as a practitioner to be getting that advice, Michael, which is sound advice and then going, but yet the things that I might be employable for are a lot of legacy skills. You know, your VMware skills are still incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. VMware is still a multi-billion dollar company you know, cranking out the revenue. And, and, and let's not forget, CPU is CPU, memory is memory, storage is storage. It doesn't matter where you're running it. My sysadmin skills for, from 10 plus years ago are still used almost daily yeah. in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. These things don't fade. Right, so focusing on fundamentals, updating with some scripting or coding knowledge, and if you want that platform engineering job, or you want to be functional in the world of hybrid IT and help with the internal developer portals and all that kind of jazz, those are excellent skills for you to have. Or you could just learn COBOL. I hear that's pretty popular. <laughs> Michael, I got another question for you that, that's uh, Kubernetes related. Now, let's step away from the practitioner and look at this from a business point of view. 
if I'm in the C-suite and I'm hearing all about Kubernetes and how amazing it is and it's going to do all this wonderful stuff for my company, but I am on, on legacy stuff and I'm talking to uh, data protection providers that are going to help me with my VMware environment and maybe that helps me with cloud, but you kind of know instinctively it's not moving you to cloud. Do they go to Kubernetes? Do they start to make a, a shift that way? How do they even do that? Should they even do that? So we're talking about if you're just, you know, in VMware, a bunch of ESXi boxes on-prem versus thinking about the Kubernetes and containerization route. Yeah. Right? So at this point, I do not believe that it is a cost savings factor. Okay. I think that you're spending money regardless. If you're if you're sitting in data centers... Well, so before you, you know, before you... Okay, so where's the money going? You know, yeah. Kubernetes is quote-unquote free, but right. you still got to stand up a cluster. You still have exactly. to have people that operate it. Is that where the costs are? Exactly, yeah. So in a data center, you're going to be spending money on people, servers, HVAC, electric, et cetera. In the cloud, you're going to be spending money on people, these experts in the Kubernetes space, and your cloud spend. So you're, regardless, you're spending money. Like I don't think you're saving money anywhere. I think where you're saving is time. Hitting an API for everything versus running everything on bare metal. It also depends on where the skill set is. If you have, let's say, for example, let's say you have two companies, 10 are infrastructure folks, 10 are developers, you know, company A, company B. The developers may have a little bit of an easier time setting up and, and creating and spinning up Kubernetes because everything's API focused. Now, here's the other thing as well. It's all about, and this is sad to say, but it is, it's all about like what the thing is right now. And that's what everybody's building for. So for example, if Kubernetes is the hot new thing and everybody's building, you know, the service mesh and the GitOps and the this and the that, at some point you have to look and say, okay, I want to use these tools, but maybe they don't exist, you know, in VMware unless we're going to build them manually or something like that. So I also think that it's a matter of, it's almost like we have to go with the trend in a sense to stay relevant. Well, I mean, KubeCon would indicate that Kubernetes is a massive trend in that right. the attendance is multiplying crazily year over year. It's a worldwide phenomenon. The number of projects that are built around it and that support it are growing all the time. Uh, but it feels like the vast majority of enterprise is just been, has been, I don't want to say left behind by Kubernetes, but it isn't ready to move to that direction. Totally. And there is a big benefit we get. If it's not a financial one in the short term, like it, as far as an OPEX spend, there is one as far as revenue generated in the theory of, if I go to Kubernetes and I enable my developers with that platform, I have faster time to market with my product. Oh yeah, totally. And it's all about smaller footprint as well, right? You know, like if you have a rack of servers versus you get rid of that and put everything in containers and throw it in the cloud, that's a far smaller footprint. It's a lot easier to manage from that perspective. It's not a lot easier to manage Kubernetes versus VMware, but uh, or just you know on-prem in general. But it is uh, because it's a smaller footprint. It is much easier to develop for. It is much easier to deploy. For example, let's say you know you're a developer and you want to test some code. You got to go to the ops person. They have to spin up a VM. They have to give you access, etc. If you're running everything in containers and eventually on Kubernetes, it's a matter of, oh, how much RAM do I have on my machine? Let me pull up Docker Desktop and Minikube. Let me test this piece. Boom, done. So it actually does make the velocity, to your point, of mm. going to market much faster. 
And then the, the other portion of that is the deployment of internal developer portals where they can, once I've tested it on my laptop, now I can spin up a development environment and test it there. And then maybe there's a pipeline that I can get in to start escalating that application up to production. And within that portal, there's a bunch of logic baked in from the operations folks that ensure things like monitoring and backup and security are all applied to the application from the operations side of things so that the developer doesn't have to worry about it as much. And that's the faster piece, right? That's the, that's the faster time to market portion of this because I, I wanna make it clear, what we're deploying to servers in, in a VMware environment versus what we're deploying to Kubernetes, we can deploy the exact same thing. This is, you know, it is not giving us anything new from that perspective. However, to your point, let's say you're in VMware and you, you need to deploy a bunch of monitoring and observability and stuff like that. That's several different tools. That's several different integrations. In Kubernetes, it's a matter of grabbing the Prometheus stack in Helm and deploying it and boom, you have your monitoring and observability in, in one stack. It's just there and it's free or open source. Free. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it, it makes it easier to just run Helm install versus saying, okay, I have these 40 servers, I have to install this agent on them, I have to get them in, you know, this UI, we have to be able to monitor them and alert on them and et cetera. And oh, by the way, it goes down at 2 a.m., we got to go to the data center versus, you know, it's just, it makes things a little bit easier from a uh, get it up as fast as possible perspective. And that's around the smaller footprint piece. Right. So the goal is to be more cloud operational yeah. In, in terms yeah. of how you're approaching things. And that's, I think, what a lot of the vendors were sort of aiming at over Cloud Field Day 17. And if you're interested in knowing more about Cloud Field Day 17 or anything having to do with Cloud Field Day and Tech Field Day, you can check it out. It's at techfieldday.com. And they also have a YouTube channel where all the presentations we've been talking about are available to watch. And it's on LinkedIn. So if you want to see the cool comments we made about the presentations as it happens... You could also do that. And if you want to be a delegate for Tech Field Day, there the Tech Field Day crew was always looking for more delegates. By delegate, what do we mean? Well, Ned, uh, me, Ethan, and uh, Mike, we were all delegates here at Tech Field Day, and that means we were part of a larger group of people that sat around and were in the room or on virtually at Zoom, uh, listening to the presentations, interacting with the presenters, asking questions, and so on. If you're interested, you want to be a delegate, and go to techfieldday.com and apply to be a delegate. There's a form right up there. explains the whole process to you. We need more delegates. Always, always. So, Michael, you're the technically the guest on this show, so why don't you tell the good folks out there where they can find you, what you're up to? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I think I'm, I'm more and more relevant on LinkedIn nowadays, so just, you know, Michael Levan, L-E-V-A-N. Twitter, I'm still posting, but... Your LinkedIn game is strong, my friend. <laughs> if you're not following Michael Levan on LinkedIn, you are missing out on prime content, no lie. Thank you so Indeed. much. Appreciate it. And yeah, anything Kubernetes and you know third-party add-on tools, whether it's GitOps, Service Mesh, Resource Cost Optimization, all of it, I'm always posting about it, blogs, videos, books, courses, all that jazz, and podcasts, Kubernetes Unpacked Podcast. On the Packet Pushers yeah, Network. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Ethan, you know, we don't do this very often, but why don't you tell the good people where they can find you and what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at EC Banks, although I don't know why I'm on Twitter anymore at this point. <laughs> I got to be honest, it seems like it's a dying ecosystem slowly, but surely every day it's a little darker and a little nastier. 
But uh, I'm trying to get my LinkedIn game going. So if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, it's it's open. Go ahead and uh, connect with me and be happy to connect with you or follow me. And I'm going to start putting out some quality LinkedIn content as well. Michael has inspired me, I must say. <laughs> uh, likewise. Yeah. 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 And you can find me on Twitter as well for now, Ned1313. But I also have been embracing the LinkedIn UI for better or for worse. <laughs> It's fine. The conversations I have to say that I'm having on LinkedIn are more fruitful and interesting than anything I've had on Twitter for a while. So I don't know what that says about either platform, but that just seems to be the reality of the situation. So if you want to find me, it's Ned Bellavance on LinkedIn, or you can just search Ned in the cloud. That's an easy way to find me. And you, you beautiful human out there listening to this podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. Virtual high fives. Bam. See, you didn't see that, but Ethan gave you a virtual high five. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> if you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow, or if that's not your thing, <laughs> go to, to Day2Cloud.io and fill out the request form there. That's actually probably the better way to do it. It sounds like we're going to rewrite our outro, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are all there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>